Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Osman Latif. You're most welcome, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you. For those who don't know, uh, Dr. Osman is a senior researcher and instructor at the Sapience Institute. He has a PhD in history and has conducted postdoctorate research in politics and international relations. He's the author of a number of books and articles, including this book, uh, Divine Perfection, Christianity and Islam on Sin and Salvation. Now, this was published just earlier uh, this year, and, uh, and I've read it. It's a very good book indeed. And in this book, uh, you look at how uh, Christianity and Islam differ in their understandings of sin and salvation. And you also uh, discuss three criticisms that have come from the Christian philosopher, Dr. William Lane Craig, namely that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is misrepresented in the Quran. And secondly, that Craig believes the Muslim doctrine of salvation compromises God's holiness. And thirdly, Craig's argument that Allah is morally inadequate and not maximally loving. Those are his three main arguments uh, that Dr. Usman uh, critiques or critically assesses in, in the book. So um, would you like to just introduce us to uh, the themes of your new book? Yeah, Bismillah. Thank you so much for having me on your on your program. Assalamu alaikum to all my viewers, and, and I pray inshallah Allah puts goodness in our short time together. Uh, I began yeah. writing this book, in fact, at the end of 2020, uh, when I came across uh, William Lane Craig's uh, website called Reasonable Faith. And in there, of course, he speaks a lot mostly about Christian theology and Christian views and so on and so forth. Hmm. But he has a short section, in fact, on on Islam, and one particular article called "Do Muslims Christians Worship the Same God?" and a few others as well. And it was uh, just reading his comments about those three or four specific points about Islamic theism that really uh, just spiked my interest in this. I thought this is a, a really unfair representation of, of what Islam actually says and is. And I began then to watch his videos and his debates with uh, other Muslim academics and and uh, speakers, and he and he kind of just spouts the same kind of arguments. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I thought, and I consulted with the team at Sopian, I thought this is worthy, in fact, writing something about it. And began, in fact, it began as an article. Mm. And just grew in size until it became a book, and so uh, that's kind of what the um, what the uh, what the background of the of the book, in fact, actually is. Right, oh, fantastic. So, I mean, what what is what is the argument when the claim is that the Trinity is misrepresenting misrepresented in the Quran? I mean, well, what's the substance of this allegation, and what's the truth of it? Do you think? Yeah, well, if you if you look at the book, I mean, the first page of the book, it cites two very important people. One is called uh, James Langford. James Langford, a Christian uh, missionary, in fact, writes a very seminal article called Some Principles of Mission to Muslims. And in the article, he writes that the greatest barrier between Christians and Muslims is the problem of sin. And this is repeated by C.R. Marsh and others that say that until Muslims recognize themselves as inherently sinful, uh, will they seek a need for a savior, uh, salvation? And that really is the fundamental beginning point, I think, of our discussion. Remember, of course, that we and Christians agree on a lot. Yeah. Our uh, our religious themes in our books interconnect in many different ways, personalities, histories, uh, are interlaced in many different ways. The, the people that we speak of are respected by both Adam and Jesus and Mary and so on and so forth. Uh, but that's not the fundamental beginning point, I think. I think the beginning point, as uh, Langford points out, is that we have a a different appreciation of what's called Hama theology, which is a concept of sin, and then soteriology, which is a concept of salvation. Yeah. And the way that both of these, in fact, represent our uh, or shed light on our uh, uh, understanding of who God actually is. Allah in the Quran says, What is your impression of the Lord of the worlds? And that's a fundamental question, in fact, that Allah is asking, because through and through, whenever we encounter theology, we must answer, ask that question all the time, what is our impression of the Lord of the worlds? And therefore, I think that uh, as opposed to the criticisms that uh, William Lane Craig levels against Islam, uh, the, the foundation 
original principle is that do we believe in a maximally perfect God? And I showed that through and through in my in my approach, that this is in fact compromised by Christian theology. And I must add, however, that we're not speaking about a, a monolithic belief. We're not speaking the Christians are not monoliths, for example. They don't all believe in the same things and exactly so we have to appreciate them, be courteous enough for that. Uh, but the, the book tackles head on, I think, the arguments made by uh, evangelist uh, William Lane Craig. But what I do also do is I, I, for example, in that first chapter on the Trinity, is I, I try to unearth all of the missionaries I could encounter uh, in my research who write about the Quran vis-a-vis the Trinity. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I went through many of them. I went through Samuel Zwemer and John of Damascus and Thomas Aquinas and Billy C. Cohen and so many others. Yeah. And I found a fundamental problem in, in, in very much selectively, selectively translating uh, parts of a verse as opposed to the whole dialogue that they seek to understand. Yeah. And that's an unfair representation. I, I think just a couple of points that I think are really important you, you make. Um, it's not always appreciated or understood by some Muslims and other people, even Christians, actually, that there are different models in, in Christianity for salvation. And the idea of substitution, substitutionary atonement um, which is very popular in some circles, Calvinists, typically evangelicals, that God substituted himself for us and was punished in our place, is not universally accepted. Uh, in the Catholic Church, for example, or the Orthodox Church, they have very different models. And I have a chapter on Christian atonement theories. Uh, so if you, if you look in the beginning of the book, I have I go through Origen and Irenaeus and yeah. Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Anselm of Canterbury in his, uh, from his uh, satisfaction theory of from Cardus Homo, why God became man. Yeah. And each of these theories in fact, builds upon the other, builds upon the previous one, which is the idea that at least if you take the, the initial ones of the Christus Victor, devil ransom theory, the idea that you know God sends Jesus as a ransom to pay the price of, of sin, because sin, of course, it uh, creates this kind of a chasm between us and, and God. Yeah. And in order to have that restored or reconciled, uh, you know, God sends his his son in, in that respect uh, you know, and pays a price. You know, uh, and, and when one in one concept, it's, it's to the devil, in fact, and it was yes, he literally pays the price to the devil yeah. himself. He, yeah, he, exactly. He, yeah, got, yeah. and then you have of course detractors. You have critics because not all Christians, in fact, who are contemporaries, agreed with these things. They they thought that was kind of unfair proposition. It was yeah, it yeah. went against reason. It went against justice. And went against the idea that it is not God who is who has to pay the debt because he's the one, in fact, who is offended by yeah. the sin and. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, to himself, yeah. And so Anselms, in fact, which was the 12th century. So for the first, I think, almost a millennium, you had the Christus Victor. It was the most famous one, Christus Victor. Uh, but then you began to have some uh, alterations in that by Christian theologians. And Al- Anselms, I think, was very, very powerful because he believed that it was, he connected um, incarnation to atonement. He believed that it was a necessity for God to become incarnate and enter the human frame because all of us are indebted to God because of our sin, and none of us are worthy enough to pay the debt back to God because we're in, unable, incapable of, and hence God must pay the debt back to himself to restore his honor. In fact, in Anselm's what it was, God's honor had been besmirched, and nothing could restore that except God himself. Mm. And uh, and that's An- Anselm's you know, theorizing of it. Yeah. So. He, he was uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, of course. He was actually yeah, yeah, for a sure, for monk, sure. and he, he went yeah. north and uh, for some reason became elected <clears throat> as Archbishop of Canterbury in England, um, and then became a very famous um, theologian of mm. the Middle Ages, probably one of the most influential yeah. along yeah. with the Aquinas. <clears throat> so, yeah. uh, yeah, sorry, I, I, I interrupted you. So there, there are various different models. You get this Christus Victus, the idea of Christ being trapped, no. the idea of paying the devil, uh, you know, his Jew, the idea that, you know, God substitutes himself to, to forgive our sins. <clears throat> I'm always very struck that when I read the early Gospels in the New Testament, how, how that Jesus speaks about forgiveness of sins in ways which don't employ any of these models. Yeah. Either. I mean, look at Luke's Gospel. It's full of wonderful parables and teachings where what yeah. is compassionate and merciful to those who show mercy and compassion and this resonates very strongly with another religion um for sure. yeah uh, for sure uh, yeah so uh, how, how different jesus teaching was from later yeah, yeah. well it's, it's quite a paradox because douglas estes in his article on 
soteriology in the in the Christian uh, encyclopedia of Christian civilization. I, I cite this, in fact, in my book. He says that it is one of the most uh, it is one of the strangest things because that doctrine of salvation is not found with much clarity. In fact, in the biblical text, in fact, it's part of because sometimes it's salvation through faith, salvation through deeds. Yeah. Sometimes it's past perfect, past present, and and it goes so many different kinds of changes. And he believes, therefore, that it's uh, paradoxical because it is the lead motif, in fact, of the biblical message about salvation, but isn't expressed in much clarity. Uh, and in fact, even the early early church fathers didn't seem to express that much interest in it. In fact, William and Craig makes an argument. He says there wasn't, for example, ecumenical council about salvation. There was many about who Jesus, in fact, was, but not about salvation. And this is why these early theories, and there's others because there's also the uh, theories of uh, Gregory of Nyssa. You have the recapitulation theory because this is how Adam is figured. In fact, and I have a very lengthy section in my book on what I call the Adamic conundrum, because uh, Adam in Genesis is then set against Adam in Romans in New Testament, when Paul figures Adam, uh, figures Jesus as a second Adam, as a new Adam, uh, you know, who does a, a far better job than the first Adam, and and as a, as a new father of humanity. And so um, the, the idea was that Jesus Christ comes to uh, take on the kind of the, the fatherly role of humanity uh, in being the best example for them. And there were others, there was also a fish hook theory of, of Gregory of Nyssa, who believed that you know, God sends Jesus as a bait to deceive the devil. In fact, in, in, yes. in Gregory's words, it was that the chief deceiver had been deceived, yes. meaning that the, the devil didn't quite know it was Jesus was God. He thought it was a holy person performing miracles, but didn't realize, in, in fact, after the until after the resurrection, that this, in fact, was God himself, and then his plan was foiled. And so each of these theories builds on the older one, um, but they're all an attempt to try and explain uh, in the whole cosmic realm of things what is the purpose of, mm. of sin and the way that Jesus Christ, uh, you know, kind of separates the, the rift or, or fixes the chasm, reconciles us back to, to God himself. And that's right. And of course, even this notion of you know, the catastrophic consequences of the fall of Adam, it, particularly we see this in St. Augustine's writings in the fifth century. But in the East, in the Orthodox churches, this is not a doctrine. They have any sense yeah, yeah. the idea of the fall is kind of not there. And they have you know, Irenaeus, you mentioned the recapitulation yeah. theory. And it's very different in these. Again, you get fundamental differences in soteriology yeah. in the mainstream historic Christian churches. And this yeah. is remarkable. If you're coming in from a Muslim point of view, you're thinking, how can there be such uh, diversity or contradictory models mm -hmm. in Islam? It's not like that. I mean, what, what is the, the Muslim understanding or the, the Islamic understanding based on the Quran and the Sunnah of salvation? How, yeah. how, you know, how are we forgiven? D obviously, God doesn't have to sacrifice his son in Islam. There is no such idea, of course. So, but what, what is the soteriological uh, yeah. in Islam? Well, I think the first thing is to, th to think about uh, what is sin in Islam, the, the, the homotology element, because then you would understand the, the effectiveness or the purposefulness of, of salvation. So in Islam, of course, it is believed that God creates us as humans and we're bound by, by, by fault and error. We're not created uh, perfectly. We're not like demigods. Um, and of course, our Christian friends have a problem here because when they set uh, Jesus against Adam, remember that Jesus is supposed to be God, but Adam, of course, isn't God. So even if you say that Jesus Christ is the superior model of Adam, well, he's supposed to be because he's supposed to be God yeah. and not God against the human Adam. But in, in Islam, of course, Allah creates all of us as as temporal, as vulnerable, as bound by, by good and bad. In fact, in the Quran, Allah says, that, you know, within one soul, Allah says, consider the self, how it's inspired towards uh, moral depravities and evil, but also piety. But that's not the most important thing. Allah then says, successful is the one that works to purify himself, and at loss is the one that, that buries himself, neglects himself. Um, um, and so, therefore, the, the labor of man is like what you find in Genesis. You know, when uh, when God says, "These are my commandments; keep them, you know, with your with your heart and your mind and your heart, and 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 try your best." I mean, that's the idea. And even God's instructions to Cain. You know, when Cain had this kind of pathological envy about him, and God says, uh, "You know, why are you why are you upset? I mean, if you do good, it'll be accepted of you, yeah. and if you do bad, then it won't be. But and 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 if you do bad, then you know, sin will come kind of crouching at your door. But you must." 
must push back against it. I mean, you must master, do something. You must master the sins. Yeah, you must have something to repel. It's interesting yeah. because when Paul cites this in Romans, he cuts out that last part of it. Huh. Yeah, that yeah. last part is kind of, you know. <laughs> it's you like, is true. I mean, you look it up. If you compare what, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, you actually check it out. Be prepared for some shocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he cuts it out. And so it's like there, there has to be almost like a necessity for man not to be in any way able. And this is why I was in Ireland having a discussion debate with Dr. Michael Nazir Ali in Trinity College in Dublin. And I and he and I made this point to because he makes this point in his books or his article, where he said that man is both incapable and unwilling to reconcile back to God. Which of course makes it a paradox because God says you do have something in you, an attempt in you. I mean, God wants to see our sincerity, our repentance, our truthfulness, our efforts. And at the end of the day, Allah tells us in the Quran that Allah is a shakur, Allah is the appreciative one, Allah is ghafur, Allah is forgiving, Allah is wadud, Allah is loving, yeah. Allah is latif and kareem. All the beautiful names and attributes of Allah reflect His divine majesty, mm-hmm. and not expecting from us perfection because He didn't make us perfect, and that's all. It's all about expectation of people so i have the you know i have a, a section called the adamic conundrum which is where i speak about the element of soteriology in islam and salvation so but the premise of course is is that human beings are not perfect we're created with faults and defects and we're bound by our instincts and desires and so on and so forth um but the adamic conundrum i think is is something really powerful and i think that more muslims should really understand this and, and perhaps use it to engage with our Christian friends in, you know, with all love and all goodness in, in, in a good way with them. And that is this, that you, you find this contrast in both narratives concerning Adam and what happened in the garden and what happens thereafter. So in Genesis, of course, you know, God places Adam and Eve in the garden and instructs them to eat from a particular tree. Uh, and the, the, the devil comes in a form of a serpent and seduces or convinces Eve to eat from the tree. She does and takes their fruit to her husband, Adam. Adam, Adam, Eve, and they're both condemned. Now, in works on, so in, in Hama theology, like Dr. Luganbill, who I cite, I learned in my book, and even William Craig, in fact, himself, they argue that Adam goes through three types of damnation, a physical damnation, spiritual damnation, and eternal damnation. And it's kind of like, you know, you, it has to be so in order for Jesus to become relevant at the end of the day. Because if it was that Adam wasn't fully condemned, then what's the whole point about Jesus' sacrifice? You know, you, you question these things. Um, whereas in the Quranic narrative, it's very different. Yeah. And I believe it really reflects the mercy and the love and the kindness and the closeness of Allah subhanahu of God Himself, because what does it say in in Surah Al-Baqarah, in chapter of the Quran, in chapter two of the Quran, it says that shaytanu anha that shaytan, the devil, caused Adam and his wife to slip. The Arabic word here is uses zel, which is to stumble, to slip, which means that all of us in life will slip at some point and stumble. Uh, but but the, but it has different connotations to a fall. A fall seems kind of very permanent, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whereas a slip is more like, you know, you can one day perhaps get yourself back up on your feet kind of uh, connotations. Mm-hmm. And so Allah says that, you know, shaitan caused them both to slip. Uh, and then they were expelled from the garden. So that divine element of justice takes over. But the, the, the verse after, I think verse 17 or 18, it says that, that Adam then receives words from his Lord. And this is, I, I speak about this at length, and I speak about different commentaries of this verse. So what does it mean that Adam receives words from his Lord? It means that, Remember, imagine the scene of Adam, this stricken servant of Allah, commits the sin. There's no other prophet around to ask, no one else around to ask except him and his wife. And uh, and Allah... Allah is mindful of fact of his sense of uh, isolation in, in one respect, his sense of despair, his honesty. Allah says, Allah then received, Adam receives word. These are words of inspiration. Allah was teaching Adam how to get himself back up on his feet. Allah was teaching Adam what to say in order to ask for, because Adam didn't know what to say. And so Allah taught him what to say. And then it says, uh, 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 and then, uh, then Allah, Taba means to relent towards. Allah leaned towards, relented towards Adam. It wasn't that Adam first sought God's forgiveness. It was that God first turned to Adam in in acceptance. And then uh, Adam sought Allah's forgiveness. And Allah is Tawab Rahim. Allah is the acceptance of repentance.
repentance and, and, and Allah is a merciful one. So we have a, we have Adam, in fact, as an archetype, in fact, of forgiveness, of mercy, of God's closeness. Rather than Adam going through the types of damnation of physical and spiritual and internal, it was instead that Adam you know, had God's clemency and God's love and mercy close to him. And this shows uh, a, a beautiful thing about Allah's beautiful attribute of Allah being al-qareeb. Allah in the Quran says Allah is Samiun Qarib, all hearing, ever near. Qaribun Mujib, ever near, all responding. And Allah's and that sense of uh, that the 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 name itself is actualized through the uh, experience of Adam in the Quran. So I focus and uh, to, to show the contrast between we speak about God's love. It's one thing, of course, to to proclaim that God is loving and Jesus loves you, but but we have to show when where is where is that love actually because we haven't seen it. Uh, at least. Yeah, so the, the Bible says, of course, so uh, love, love the world. The world. Yeah. He, sent, he sent someone else, his son, um, mm. to die on the cross. But but of course, that's the death of an innocent human being, obviously, yeah. uh, in a particularly horrible way, tortured to death. But how is this a manifestation of a a lovingness, yeah. so love that he sent someone else to do that? But also, how is it a manifestation of justice? Because justice would require that the guilty is punished, not the innocent. And so, although the headline is God loves you, when you look at the mechanism and the actual what is allegedly had taken place, it looks very odd from a Muslim point of view. And, and clearly for Christianity, sin is a big problem. But for Islam, it's not. God God is bigger than sin. He can forgive. He is merciful. He, he wishes to bring yeah. grace rather than condemnation. Um, so there's a different kind of feel uh, for both these religions. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, you know, set, setting against the, the the ambiguity, I think in the biblical text about salvation, you find much more of clarity, uh, uh, you know, in clarity in the Quranic message about sin and salvation. That number one, we say that human beings are bound by sin. Remember that uh, William and Craig alleges that there's no, there's no that God is morally inadequate in Islam because He doesn't forgive sinners. This is in fact His His claim. Uh, whereas it's so incorrect because the whole premise of of the Quran is that everyone, in fact, is is a sinner, and the Prophet Muhammad says that all of the sons of Adam are sinners. And the best of those are those who turn back to God and repentance. So at the outset, we're all, in fact, sinners. Yeah. So everything in the Quran, therefore, is uh, is for us to lift us out of sin into salvation. Yes. So William and Craig says, for example, that you know the love of God in Christianity is an unconditional one, universal one, yeah. and a um, was a unconditional, universal, and um, one more, I, I forgot. This was a third layer of, of what God's love is. But I discussed these at length in my book. Uh, whereas each of these, in fact, uh, these other Christian theologians, in fact, who would debate with William and Craig and say that these manifestations of God not loving people in the Bible, in the book of Hosea, in the book in the Psalms, for example. In fact, Eric Peel, the Dutch theologian, says that the most absolute form of, of hatred is used in, in those verses in Psalm 5.5 or Hosea 9.15, for example. Uh, but I think that just in this attempt to try and show God as 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 full love, uh, there is uh, there is a kind of an unfair representation of one's own faith in trying to do that. Whereas in Islam, it's realized, it's recognized that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows love, Allah is loving, but Allah also condemns people you know, for their transgressions and their sins. But Allah's mercy is universal. That's the key difference. Allah's mercy is for everybody. Everybody has access to Allah in a sense. So Allah in the Quran says, Say, O oh, my servants who have wronged their own souls, do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Allah is all forgiving and Allah is all merciful. That means you know, I could have wronged my soul, you've wronged, we've all wronged our souls in different ways. But Allah is saying that wherever you are, whoever you are, whoever you are, meaning Muslim or non-Muslim, anybody, if you feel you've wronged yourself, don't despair of the mercy of Allah. That means that mercy is, is universal. And it's interesting, by the way, also that uh, Rahma in Arabic is from the Arabic word Rahim, which means womb. Mm-hmm. A womb. So therefore, mercy has kind of perhaps a maternal character to it. Uh, and 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 I highlight in the book that it's interesting, very because in those verses concerning Jesus and Mary, uh, you have Allah mentioning Allah's rahma, Allah's mercy. So, for example, the verse in the Quran where Allah says that uh, Mary is in her private chamber and the angel comes to her, angel Gabriel, Basharan Sawi as a handsome man. And her first words were, Qalat inni minka in I seek refuge with Rahman from you, if you have any righteousness. And it's really powerful because uh, rather than 
the belief that the one she would give birth to would become like this manifestation of world mercy, she already knows who is the merciful one. It's Allah. And that's who she seeks refuge from at that instant. Uh, likewise, the verse in the Quran where Allah says that they say, Rahman has taken a son. It's interesting. They say, Rahman has taken a son. They've said a, tr- a monstrous thing. And it's like the, the heavens, you know, split and the earth cracks and the, the mountains crumble in that they say, Rahman has taken a son. The whole point is, is that mercy and forgiveness are, are with Allah, are with God alone. We don't give them to others, you see, because then that means everything that's great in you as a human being, your potential, your capacity, your ability to worship, revere, you're giving everything that's good to something or somebody other than and other than God. And this is why one of the, the confusions that Christian missionaries have, and I cite this in my book, um, William Lane Craig is one of them, but there's others as well, is that when they uh, misunderstand the verses from the Quran, so for example, I cite chapter 5, verse 116 to 118. Now that is the complete dialogue between Allah and His servant Jesus. Uh, so I, I, I haven't found, in fact, Maybe I'm wrong, but in my research in the book, at least during the year, I haven't found any Christian missionary who has cited the, the whole three verses, the whole dialogue in full. Nobody. I mean, I found nobody, nothing. Uh, but I find I find that they cite the same half-selected opening verse without looking at the broader context of what was actually being said. And that is when Allah says to Jesus in the next life, in the judgment, oh, uh, uh, Jesus, did you tell people to take you and your mother as ilahain min dunillah, as two gods besides Allah? Uh, now, the, the, this is the appreciation of how do we understand the meaning of God in the Quranic paradigm? What is the meaning of ilah in the Quranic the paradigm? Accusation that Dr. Craig is accusing uh, the Quran, if you like, uh, of misrepresenting the Trinity. Yeah. And this is the That's right. This is the verse he actually, well, this is a, a slither of, a, of an ayah he yeah. without the yeah. surrounding. One, one half of one verse that he Sites, yeah, and 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 people before Samuel Zwimer, they all do the same thing as he does. Maybe they copy it. I'm not sure, but it's that first half of that one verse, and so they they focus on the on the fact that it says as two ilahs, as ilahain. Now, of course, in the whole Quranic paradigm, the the ilah means much more than just the creator of the universe. So it's not saying you take tell people take you and your mother as two creators of the universe. Aside from me, the ilah is Ibn Qayyim says that the ilah is anybody whose heart is moved towards muhabbatan wa ijlalan wa ikraman wa ta'zeeman wa khawfan you know in, in love in veneration in reverence in fear in obedience mm-hmm. in supplication that becomes your ilah. And yeah. so you could have items, objects, uh, people. Your own desires. Have you not seen Desires. That's it. That's it. So the same one. Exactly. Their own desires. And that's it. That's it. Your desires are the creation of the universe. No, no. <laughs> that's it. Exactly. So uh, I speak about, therefore, uh, I, uh, these versions, because it's good that we spoke about the fact that we're not dealing with, uh, with a monolithic group or believe all the same things. Catholics believe things different to Protestants and Lutherans. And so when it comes to Mary and her figure, uh, there are different beliefs. But it's interesting that uh, Allah singles out Jesus and his mother in this verse, because Allah is saying to him, did you tell people, take you and your mother as two ilah besides Allah? Now, uh, it's interesting because, so Allah, he says to Allah, uh, I, I couldn't have said that, oh Allah, because I, I just said, subhanak, he says, you know, all perfection belongs to you. I only said what you commanded me to say to them, which is to worship Allah, my Lord, and your Lord. I think we, I think if you're going to find unequivocal um, verses in the Bible, even when Jesus spoke about God, it's verses like these, you know, worship my God and your God and so on and, and so forth. John, John's gospel, paradoxically, if Jesus said, I'm returning to your father, my father, your yeah, God, exactly. my God. Jesus says he has a God, and this is at the end of John. <laughs> That's right. So even this is, is a testament in the next life when, when Adam speaks to Allah, and he says, this is what I told the people to worship, you know, worship you, worship you, my God and your God. And he says that when I was with them, I was a watcher over them. But when you took me, you were watch over them. That means something. That means that all these tangents emerged after Jesus, not in his time. It's, it's powerful. It means that in his time, these tangents didn't exist except when he left. Then people began to to debate about who Jesus was and everything else. And then he says to Allah that the last verse is uh, into fa If you punish them, then they're your servants. 
and if you forgive them, then you are almighty and all wise. And and no one ever quite quotes this last last verse, by the way, you know. And there's one narration we have of the Prophet, of the Prophet Muhammad upon him, that once he, he he prayed the whole night prayer, just reciting this one verse. Uh, again, after the other, after the other, meaning again and again and again, just one single verse, a whole night and weeping, into adhibhum fa'innahum, but if you punish them, then you're your servants, and if you forgive them, you are the most mighty, most wise. Because this reflects, of course, Jesus Christ and Allah. And it's interesting, he doesn't say you are the most merciful of the most merciful, you might expect, because he's speaking about forgiveness, but he, uh, you know, in that situation, God isn't pleased with those people because of what they did. And uh, and so Jesus, he doesn't overstep his his mark, his limit. He knows knows where to stop with Allah, and uh, and so th- 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 those are the three verses therefore in question. Uh, but if you look at the way that, so I think that you know for us because we're looking at the 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 entirety of what's happening here, we can look back and say, well, there you have you know, two groups of people, in fact, which emerged after Jesus Christ, one is going to be the Catholics and the other other person. But the Protestants debate with the Catholics because of what came along of uh, Mary Lottery or Mariology, because they believe the Catholics are over-venerating Mary, who they figure as a mediatrix and not just Jesus as a mediator. And this became a, a kind of in-house debate amongst themselves. So one group was saying, you're not giving Mary her due rights because she is uh, the, the theologian the, the mother of God, and the other is saying, you're not, you know, you should stop it. Jesus is enough for us because he is a mediator. And Allah is saying, you, you took, these people take both of them as two gods besides Allah. So it's like, we can look back at it and see the deviation, you know, in this. Absolutely. And there are many other, you mentioned Theotokos, uh, the God bearer, as a title given to Mary at the mm. council. Ephesus. There are other titles she has, and these are mainstream titles given by the the biggest church on earth today, and it's always been the biggest church, the Catholic Church. And they call her uh, the spouse of the Holy Spirit. That means she's literally the wife of the Holy Spirit. The Holy yeah, Spirit and, and the co-redeemer. Co-redeemer, I mean. Uh, co-redeemer. And another one is Queen of the Universe. So I keep trying, you can just mm-hmm. Google Queen of the Universe, and you get schools and also Catholic schools named after this. So who is the Queen of the Universe? It's Mary. So she has been given these quasi-divine, but if you ask the church, yeah. is Mary divine? Oh, no, 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 she's not divine. They'll deny that. Yeah, they give her these these titles, and they and they pray the rosary to her, Hail Mary, yeah, Lord, yeah. Lord is with thee, um, and they pray to her and supplicate her. There's statues and the, the infallible decorations that she's assumed into heaven infallibly that she was born immaculately. These two infallible. Yeah. So a huge amount of veneration and praise and honor heaped onto this this uh, this woman. So and the point is, it's not just Muslims. It's it's, it's Protestants who have a problem with that. It's Lutherans who have a problem with that as well. And so I think that in the Quran, therefore, it deals with the reality of the matter. It's not just about saying this or that. It's about the reality is, is that people have in the veneration of Mary taken to to her as a god besides Allah. That's the whole point. And so it's interesting that you know in the Quran, because the Quran, of course, is it has a great esteem for the character of Maryam, Mary, and the chapter 19 of the Quran is named after her. And, uh, you know, she's given that sense of great privilege and pride in the Quran. She's one of the four greatest of all women in the Hadith. Um, but those verses in the Quran addressed to Maryam are very profound because it says, Ya Maryam, rabbiki wasjudi marakin. Oh, Maryam, be devout to your Lord. Everything is God-focused, centric in the Quran. It's God-centric. It's about God's uh, it's about God's praise and God's veneration. Oh, Maryam, be devout to your Lord and prostrate and bow with those who bow, meaning everything is subordinated and dependent on God as opposed to, you know, uh, someone else becoming a demigod or kind of a, a co-this or co-that. Everything is about God being venerated and praised in the Quran. Amazing. Uh, His second criticism, Dr. Craig believes that the Muslim doctrine of salvation compromises God's holiness. How on earth can the Muslim doctrine of salvation compromise God's holiness, do you think? What's what's he getting at there? Yeah, so he gets to the point of the verse that you quite quoted about uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Mm. I mean, God's forgiveness. And I think that, you know, in ignoring, therefore, the whole paradigm archetype of Adam in the Quran and how he figures as a model of salvation is a great uh, disservice, in fact, to what the Quran represents, because the Prophet says that all of us, all of the sons of Adam are sinners, like our father Adam in the first place. But Allah, but the best of those sinners are to go back to God in repentance. And so as opposed to Adam being this one cast out, 
and just forgotten and then jesus taking his place as a second uh, a second father second adam uh, adam remains as an important figure in fact in the quran and uh, as i think it's a paradigm for us in understanding god's clemency and god's mercy so his second point therefore is about is simply about that is about is god forgiving enough in the quran and uh, the whole point is in the fact in the quran allah is saying woman who forgives sins except allah Meaning, the whole point is that, remember, the Quran has come to, to clarify mistakes made by previous dispensations. That's the whole point. This is why I use the Quran a lot in, in my book, because I think that, you know, the, the, the Quranic approach to these issues is, of course, the strongest one. And that's the one that Allah wants us to use. That, uh, you know, with, with, with full, you know, I mean, Christians, of course, approach the text with full conviction and sincerity and love and not, I'm not debating them. I mean, for sure, Christians love God. I mean, there's no debate about that. But Allah in the Quran says, that they forgot a great portion of what they were supposed to bear in mind. That's the key. That's the key difference. And so, um, you know, when it comes to God being merciful, the whole point is that it's between you and uh, and you and God that I have my faults, mistakes. It's my sincere, it's my attempt at sincerity or being sincere, devotion, uh, honesty, my desire to turn back to God. That's what matters for God. Like for example, Allah in the Quran says, "It is not your, it is not their meat or their blood that reaches Allah." God isn't concerned about the meat or the blood of anything or anybody. Allah says, "It is, it is your." Piety, your righteousness reaches Allah. Allah is concerned about you, your heart, your being, your devotion. What you're saying here, what the Quran is saying there, is so reminiscent of what many of the prophets in the Jewish Bible say. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. How, how God has portrayed there someone. I, I don't like your offerings and the smell of your burnt offerings. Yeah, exactly, require, exactly. Like in Micah, I require you to walk humbly and justly on yeah, the right, right. earth. And you think, yeah, this is Islam as well. You can see, <laughs> you can see a direct continuity between the prophets' sense. Uh, that's right, that's right. And, and and the last prophet sent to to the whole human race it's right. continuity but so you just touched on something there very briefly i've always i've always found it slightly uh i'm not clear in my mind what, what when the quran says that uh he's come to remind the the people of the book uh that those things that they have in part forgotten, forgotten. Mm. um or, or just overlooked or forgotten or forgotten is that are they saying that the revelation that they had received has been partially lost or that they have, have just been neglectful of what they have if you see what i mean uh, or, or is that yeah, or, or it's or it's like for example our or their approach towards their revelation i mean even the quran for example condemns people who take a part of the book and they reject a part of the book so you have the revelation but what you select from it and what you practice of it is something else like for example the hadith of uh, the Prophet's companion Ziyad ibn Labi, the Prophet says that knowledge will be lifted. And Ziyad says, Oh, Prophet of Allah, how when we recite Quran and they teach it to our children and they recite and until eternity, how, how, is, how is knowledge going to go? And he says, May your mother weep over you. He's, I used to think you were the most intelligent person in Medina of, of intelligence. And he said, do you not see these Jews and Christians who recite the Torah and the Injil and don't act according to it? You know, so it's one thing having the book. And I could, for example, a person could select some parts that he likes. But what about the other parts that like you mentioned in the Old Testament where God says, then just walk humbly and seek God and ask for it. What about those parts then of, the, of, the, of the Old Testament? So the whole point is about you know, a person's sincerity and sincere approach towards the revelation, not selecting only those things which agree with his, with his church or his whatever, but about being sincere to the faith itself. And there is, of course, even in Islam, we have to be mindful because uh, those verses are not, primarily to Christians, they're in fact for us as an audience. Uh, as a reminder, don't be like those who came before you and did X, Y, and Z. Uh, in fact, every verse in the Quran should be addressed to us, is addressed to us first and then to others, in fact. And so uh, we have to take uh, take heart, take to heart those, uh, you know, uh, reminders about not being not being um, you know uh, led astray by so on and so forth the quran in fact has the same uh, you know the same ascriptions about you know walking humbly on the earth not being arrogant and and approaching the text with sincerity and so on and so forth 
Mm, yeah, I think they clarify that. I mean, the thirdly, uh, creates argument that Allah uh, is morally inadequate and not maximally loving. But yeah. before, before you perhaps comment on that, I'm, I'm struck by the, the repeated claim from William then Craig that uh, God is is love, but unconditionally loving. He doesn't hate people. He hates sin, but doesn't hate people. Uh, and and as you rightly say, I mean, you you quote uh, on page uh, 114. Uh, I won't read them all, but you quote a number of passages in the Jewish Bible which say precisely what craig denies i mean for example there's a in psalm uh five verse five it says the boastful will not stand before your eyes you hate all who do injustice so god hates those people who commit injustice and then another passage do i not hate those who hate you lord and abhor those who are in rebellion against you i have nothing but hatred for them i count them my enemies and this is a prophet of god david uh, so that was the psalm uh, 139 verses 21 to 22 david is calling the new testament a prophet uh of of god king david so clearly that there, there are passages that william and craig is overlooking in his own scriptures um when he advances the claim that god is maximally loving and would never say uh anything hateful or hate individuals when he plainly does in his own scriptures i think that's a curious anomaly shall we say yeah and i think of course it's it's odd in fact because if you say god loves everything that means god loves nothing because he loves everything in exactly the same way that means no there's no gradients of love anymore so what incentive does it give up the human being to do anything if god loves everybody everyone Mm. the same way you know that means god loves the devil like he loves moses i mean what's the what's the uh criteria of, of what love actually is whereas in the quran allah tells us allah is a wadud allah is a loving one but there are some things that we must try and be like in order for us to receive that that love now th- i want to clarify a point because i think that we've been unfairly represented by our christian missionary friends in many ways and one of them and i raised this point in fact with dr michael nazir ali as well and i cited a book in my at length in, in the book and that is about the grace of god mm-hmm. so you'd hear it a lot you say that you know christians i think when they see muslims doing good deeds like you know praying and fasting or whatever they must think you know these guys are like relying on their good deeds to get to heaven <laughs> you know whereas us we rely on the sacrifice of god himself in, in jesus christ uh, which is so incorrect, which is so incorrect, because, and I'll give you a few, few evidences. So one of them, in fact, and this is a repeated recurring motif in the Quran, where Allah says, had it not been for the grace and mercy of Allah, walawla, had it not been for the grace and mercy of Allah, uh, and many verses, had it not been for the grace and mercy of Allah, and Allah is, uh, you know, you would never have attained to purification, but Allah purifies your wills. Had it not been for, I mean, Allah repeats that point again and again, emphasizing that you're nowhere without the grace and the mercy of Allah. It's not your deeds per se. Likewise, when the Prophet Muhammad says that, peace be upon him, that none of you will enter heaven on account of your deeds. And I don't know how Christians just don't mention this. This, this evidence, you know, because it's so striking. And so at the moment, there's a book by Ibn Rajmuhammadi called Journey to Allah, translated, in fact. It's, the Arabic is Al-Mahajja Fi Sayr Al-Dulja, which is translated as the uh, the objective or the direction in journeying to the latter part of the night. And this, the, the whole point is, that the, the, the whole point of the, the, the book is it's explaining, the whole book is explaining that one single hadith, that none of you will enter heaven on account of his deeds. Yeah. And, and then the Prophet of Allah says, and then the companions are amazed, said, you are so no, a messenger of Allah, not even you. Not even you, you know, the great prophet. No, not even you, you and, and not even me. Except if Allah, was to, <laughs> if Allah was to show me his mercy, I'll be saved. And so this hadith is so striking because it's, it's completely negating what they claim about Islam, that Muslims depend on their deeds because the Prophet is saying that it's not your deeds per se that's going to save you. And then the Prophet of Allah says, In different narrations of that, of that uh, of that hadith he said and so be firm and balanced and journey to allah in the beginning of the day and the end of the day and take something from the last part of the night meaning you know be mindful of allah remember allah in the morning and in the evening you know have that conscience of allah as you traverse and sludge and trudge through and navigate through life be conscious of allah and be, be mindful of allah and so on and so forth and then ibn rajim says for example what is the place of good deeds and how do we figure them one of them is in terms of uh, uh, shows our uh, represents our obedience to allah one of them is about our 
the different stations we have represented by the goodies that we do. But the point is this, is that it's not the deeds itself that's going to save anybody except by the mercy of Allah. You know, I think that's, that's something powerful for us to always bear in mind. In those verses you mentioned, for example, I think Hosea 9.15 or, or Psalm 5.5, Eric Peel, the Dutch theologian, and I, and I have this as a footnote in the book, he says the most absolute form of hatred, in fact, is used in this verse. So it's not just about God hating. He said the most absolute form, meaning God despises those people. Yeah. He, he has, you know, so it would make no sense to say that God loves everything and everybody. That means, you know, God loves, God loves sin and God loves whatever agrees with sin. That means you, it would become chaotic. Whereas in Islam, it is that God loves good. And God loves the pursuers of good, and God wants us to be attracted to good and to seek good. But God is not in line in favor of, of wrong and harm and evil and injury and, and those things and causing and harm to others. And God doesn't want us to be attracted to those things. Because if you say God loves everything, that means a person will say, then I, I'm going to be saved at the end. There's no point in me. Yeah, well, why be good? If God loves me anyway, I'm going to go to paradise. Why, why, That's why, right. Uh, there's no incentive to be righteous. I mean, I, even, I, I, okay. Yeah, but even in this, there is a, there's not entire, because I, like William and Craig, for example, in his book on atonement, speaks about the, these things about God's love and God's uh, acceptance, but there's still conditions, by the way, that Christians place on that love. Like, for example, they still say that it has to be uh, a baptism, for example, there has to be, you know, following the commandments, there has to, to be... Repent. You have to repent. You have to repent. You have to... Faith in Jesus has two yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So there's still some things. So he has this thing about the, the pardon and the pardonee. And he says, you can't be pardoned unless you have the pardonee, and you have to be the pardonee to be accepting of the pardon. And so if you're not the pardonee, then how can you accept the pardon of Jesus Christ? And therefore, they have these kind of uh, these conditions as well, you know. Absolutely. Now, I, I'm often struck that, that, that not all Christians, but particularly Christian missionaries, sadly, seem to misrepresent Islam and Judaism. They misrepresent Islam in the ways you have described by partially quoting verses yeah. and the context uh, and ignoring amazing hadith like the one where you said the prophet upon whom BP said no one enters to paradise by the good works alone and they, they ignore all this but they also do it with judaism they got this on they seem to think that jews uh the way they saw the law the torah that the, the torah was just sent yeah. so we could try hard to obey it but we know we couldn't really obey it and so we, we know we were waiting for one the messiah who would die in our place for our sins and release us from obedience to the law Jews never thought that, that this is no. a fiction and that the, the Jews rejoice in the law. So it's Psalm 119, the biggest yeah. psalm of all, is a, a eulogy to the law, the instructions, the Torah, and how they delight to obey it and how, how it is good to obey it, how it brings life and wholeness and, yeah. and wisdom. It's a completely yeah. story. Than the and, and, and even uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the verse in the Bible says that they were, they fulfilled the law completely. Yes. If they fulfill it completely, that means they've done it completely. That means there wouldn't be a need. It's the Gospel of <laughs> chapter 1, verse 6. It, it yeah. says Zachariah, the parents, actually mm. fulfilled the, the, the law perfectly. And they're not the only ones about many people fulfilled the law completely. If that is the case, as you say, what's the point of Christianity? Yeah. Because they fulfilled the law perfectly. Yeah, I think, I think that there needs to be, there needs to be like this failing in the human condition uh, in order for Jesus Christ, you know, to be, um, to, to become like the salvific figure. And that is not to say, of course, that human beings are all good because we have that evil component to us. And of course, the Quran recognizes that, but nor are we all bad either. And in fact, even if you think about uh, mercy as emanating from the Rahim, which means the womb, I think the best demonstrations of that love and care perhaps is 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 from motherhood because i mean you, of course you have bad sadistic mothers as well and of course i'm not saying that but i mean that that first sense of protection and warmth and care the baby experiences in fact is from the mother right and uh, like uh, one of my books i write about i have another i have a few other books but one of my books i write about the very remarkable case of primo levy in 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 auschwitz in birkenau and um you know when he described i think it was Birk or dachau or Bir birkenau where he speaks about the um, uh, when the uh, when the Nazis gave the the command to the women uh, that the next day they have to be transported to the death camp and and he and he describes and he's and this is on the f first second page of surviving Auschwitz of his of the first memoir in fact of the Holocaust uh, where he says that 
uh, he saw women like packing small bits of biscuits and things in their bags and then hanging their, their baby's clothes out on the line to dry. And then he questions himself and he says, what, what would compel a mother to do that, knowing, of course, their baby's dying the next day? And he says, but isn't, isn't that what a mother's supposed to do? I mean, a mother wouldn't stop being a mother if, her, if she knows that her baby's going to die the next day. And in fact, in one hadith, it says the Prophet was with his companions. And there was a woman who was frantically looking for her child and searching everywhere. And the Prophet says, do you see that woman? Do you think that she would throw her child in the fire? And they said, no, because if she has no need to, why would she do that? And then the Prophet says, but Allah is more merciful to his servants than that woman is to her child. So within the whole, uh, you know, within motherhood, therefore, we can learn, therefore, a lot uh, you know, about that. And indeed, the, 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 these stories are reminiscent. Uh, I keep on going on about this, but it's so striking, I think, to the, the, the parables and the stories we read of in the yeah. Gospels in the New Testament. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. no. uh, uh, whether or not Jesus actually said them, they're, they're attributed to them. Yeah. Very, very similar. And that's, that, for me, is always the uh, how, how I first encountered Islam was the teachings of Jesus in, in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And I recognize a kindred spirit, a similar, similar spiritual um kinship that obviously spoke of a similar origin a divine origin and that's how uh, for me uh, the authenticated that authenticated the teaching yeah. of both the prophets of jesus and muhammad upon whom be pleased mm. yeah. yeah beautiful i have by the way a fourth section in the book uh craig makes four arguments in fact he makes four uh-huh. yeah and the fourth one concerns the character of the prophet himself uh-huh. and so my my fourth chapter is kind of a is uh, in taking more of a historical approach towards uh, the way that Christian missionaries have misrepresented the faith through the prophet's character. Um, and I think that what the chapter deals with is it, how, how did Christians, I mean, how did Christians view Islam when it first came? How do they try to understand what this new faith actually is? Some sort as a Christian heresy, some yeah. sort as a heresy, some sort as kind of, you know, so, they kind of try to attribute different things to what this faith might mean. And I think that at some points uh, in, in human history, in Islamic history, uh, it became much more of a trouble to them, like I, I mentioned in the book, uh, because they couldn't understand, uh, like, for example, when the Muslims got to Spain and Andalus in 711, and 710 was civil war between, uh, you know, th- uh, the, the the sons of Witiza and uh, and uh, King Roderick, and and that civil war was an intense war. But when the Muslims arrived, they saw the Muslims are like these saviors because they put an end to the civil war and and they give rights. And you had the, Theod- the-, the Treaty of Theodomer, which was to give rights to the Christians not to break the crosses and so on. And even the Jews, uh, you know, one of the Jewish um, academics. Uh, Zohar, Zohar said that the, the Jews saw Muslims as saviors from Christian persecution because you have the Second Council of, T- of Toledo where they persecuted the Jews and they forced baptism and forced conversion and everything else. So it's about how did Muslim, how did Christians then make sense of what Islam actually was if it's giving these rights and if it's believing in Jesus, believing in Mary and so on and so forth. And that became that became a sticking point. So, um, so what the what the chapter focuses on is is looking at those early Christian apologetic apologists like um, Thomas of Aquinas and and Thomas Aquinas, sorry, and John of Damascus and Thomas Aquinas and others uh, in their attempt to kind of defame the prophetic character by focusing on a few things but ignoring the broader context of things. So, for example, William Lane Craig. I think it's in the second chapter where he speaks about the the morally inadequate inadequate nature of God and Islam in his words. And he says that in Christianity, you're told to love your enemies. All right. And he makes this big thing about this. And uh, and so if you look you know, within the biblical tradition, loving your enemies means, you know, feeding them when they're hungry and giving them water when they're thirsty. Uh, but you have in the Quran, you have a similar thing because it's saying that the Prophet's companions f- they say uh, that Allah says that they feed their, their feed, um, uh, they feed others, you know, even though they themselves desire the same kind of food. A miskin, wayatim, wa asira, the hungry, the, the, sorry, the, the, the orphans, the poor, and the prisoners. And these are prisoners of war, captives taken, you know, from battles. And Islam therefore encourages to feed the poor, the prisoners, even though they might be enemies of Islam. And in the Prophet's own life, so many times did captives embrace Islam when they saw the fair treatment and the mercy of, of the Prophet of Islam. 
Yeah. So another thing that he mentions in that, in that section about the morally inadequate thing is the fact that um, uh, in, in Christianity, you're told to love your enemies. This is the whole point, love your enemies like yourselves. Uh, and again, what does that actually mean? You know, what does loving enemies actually mean? To what extent do you love an enemy? And how do you explain what love actually is here? What is what is actually love? Because the words might sound now nice on the, on, on the lips. It, it, what is the emotion? Like, oh, I love uh, I love X. Well, well, what, but, how, yeah, how do you practically? Is a practical yeah, thing. How do you show that? And so I, I have, for example, in, in in the book showing that in the prophetic character, that what love, you know, what goodness actually means is being fair, being equitable, not mistreating, you know, not being aggressive against. All of these things are in the Islamic framework. So, for example, in the prophetic character, the prophet says to his companion, Uqut uh, ibn Amari says, Uqut ibn Amari says, Silman Qatak, join relations with those that cut from you and give to those who deny you and pardon those who wrong you. Meaning, and he said, don't be like those who say that we will be good if others are good to us. Meaning, don't be like those people. And so the, the Islamic uh, in etiquette of courtesy to others, of forgiveness, of mercy, of fair dealing, is what's encouraged in Islam. And I think that he misrepresents Islamic because he ignores all of these things. And uh, by folks... Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, but also he ignores uh, the character of, of God as he is portrayed in his own Bible, because uh, mm. I mean, this is a commonplace, but it has to be said just for the record. God is portrayed as ordering genocide in the Bible, mm. uh, targeting specifically not just men, but women, children and babies. If you think I'm making this up, go and look at 1 Samuel chapter 15 and you'll see the categories of people who are to be exterminated at the hands of the yeah, Israelites. Yeah. That's and right. Children and babies and animals. And you, in case people then say, oh, well, that's just the Old Testament, as if somehow God has a, a personality transplant halfway through the story. It's there in the New Testament as well. How can that be? Look at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Oh, yes. Jesus is no longer Mr. Nice Guy, like mm. he is loving enemies in the Gospels. He is no, Revelation who slaughters his enemies on an industrial mm. scale. He is not loving them. He is wiping them from the face of the yeah, earth of course, yeah. uh, in great blood and, and carnage. So uh, it's a very selective reading of the Bible to say, oh, well, God is love. Yeah, there are those verses in 1 John, but there's an awful lot of genocide and killing by this very mm -hmm. same God in the Bible. That's right. That's right. You know, so I think that, you know, what's uh, what can be summarized is that, you know, uh, if if Christian missionaries want to learn about Islam, that's all good and well. It's all fine. You can write about anything. But I think that to be fair uh, means requires some study of what Islam is and represents. And uh, at the same time, not being uh, overly selective on your own faith to prove a case, to prove a point. I mean, if you believe it to be true, then it is true. Then you just say it's how it is, you know, as opposed to hiding some things in in the hope that Muslims probably won't won't encounter them at some point, uh, in of uh, of our lives. Yeah, I, I think I'm hopeful because uh, Christian theologians and philosophers have begun to understand the Jewish faith and the Jewish scriptures since particularly since the Second World War on its own to have begun to understand it correctly and, and abandon those tropes and stereotypes about oh Jews try to earn their salvation by good works and all this. It, it's wrong. I'm hoping because they've done that or beginning to do that work, yeah. necessary work, I'm talking about responsible Christian scholarship here. Yeah. They will one day begin to do the work on Islam. And William Lane Craig oh. Uh, has many excellent qualities. We we applaud sure, him. Sure. Defends uh, the existence of God against the atheists. But when it comes yeah, to Islam, yeah. he's yet to do serious. Uh, I would argue serious research on Islam. He's still trading in these very old stereotypes and misinformed yeah. opinions, and he needs to perhaps you know grade up on that as well. Yeah. Well, I I have sent the book to him and his team uh, and, and written something for him in the hope that perhaps he would uh, you know, reinvestigate those things. Uh, I do cite in my book the case of Samuel Zwemer, who was a very famous evangelist in the 20th century, who worked you know, throughout the Muslim world, in fact. Um, but Samuel Zwemer is back as a case in point, as you mentioned, because in the early part of his ministry or his mission, uh, he began, he said some her horrendous things about Islam and about the names of Allah and about this and that. But by the end of his life, he had a complete U-turn. In fact, he, he said that the Prophet Muhammad is one of the greatest souls ever created yeah. because, yeah, yeah, because he reintroduced yeah. monotheism to the Arab people <laughs> and, he, and he had a U-turn on the names of Allah because he said that, you know, we would agree with these names of Allah. So I think that, you know, sincerity and and good work yes. uh, leads people to better places whereas being insincere of course is like it's like a, a veil 
I think you hit the neck nail on the head there. I mean, people like in the British philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton, who uh, sadly passed away just a couple of years ago, he, he was a very traditional right-wing conservative philosopher and, and political figure for years and said some very nasty things about Islam. But towards the end of his life, uh, yeah. You see this, for example, in, in his wonderful dialogue with Sheikh Hamza, Hamza Yusuf at the Zayn mm-hmm. So You can see it on YouTube. He had yeah. matured and developed and become yeah, yeah, yeah. Islam as a conservative right-wing Christian philosopher. Mm-hmm. And you, you see, because he was sincere, he wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the key, I think, to people evolving uh, rather than just defending entrenched positions. Yeah, that's so true. So true. May Allah grant the sincerity because sincerity, you know, opens up uh, so many doors of understanding and wisdom. Whereas if you have a closed mind, you're going to die with your prejudices. And, and that's an unfortunate case for, for all of us. This is true for all of us. Yes, it's important not to point the finger just at them, but all us as well for our own, our own uh, of course. misguided notions. So, well, that, that's um, that's uh, absolutely fantastic. I, I do uh, recommend uh, this book, uh, Divine Perfection, Christianity and Islam on Sin and Salvation. There's lots of uh, gems in there to help us have a richer understanding of Christianity and Islam on these subjects uh, and, and to debunk some uh, you know misconceptions, particularly if, if you are a Christian and don't understand yeah. really uh, that the fullness of Islamic teaching rather than selective and yeah. text quotes, uh, I, I think so. And, and also, it, it's a, it, it gets Christianity right. Obviously, you're very well informed about uh, the Christian theologians and writers and leaders throughout the, the centuries. So, yeah, I, I do recommend that. I'll link to it in the description below. It's just Thank published so um, a few months ago, isn't it? Isn't it um, That's right. We also have the book as a free for, yeah. as a free ebook, by the way, on our website, so you can download it for free also. Oh, well, even better. I paid for this. No, anyway, you can buy it as well. <laughs> I'll link to the uh, to that. So it's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank Dr. you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure, and I hope people have benefited uh, from this. I'm sure we have benefited from it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you. Assalamualaikum to all. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.